Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Paget here and on this week's episode I'm interviewing Alan Adamson to talk about how brands need to shift to stay relevant in today's fast changing world. But before we get into that, I want to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software that allows you to create professional invoices in as little as 30 seconds, branded with your own logo and color scheme. A core feature I like is that your clients can pay directly from those invoices, meaning that you'll get paid faster as a result. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek and be sure to enter Logo Geek in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So as mentioned this week, I'm honored to be joined by Alan Adamson, who's a true expert in all disciplines of branding. Here today, he's the founder of branding agency Metaforce. And prior to this, he was chairman of branding firm Landor Associates, as well as in management positions for agencies such as Ogilvy and Matha. He's the author of a number of books on branding, with the most recent being Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. And this book is the focus of the conversation to find out how and why brands need to shift and how those who work in branding can help save a company before they become completely irrelevant. As a side note, during the call, we did have a couple of technical issues with the connection and recording. So I did need to change my recording method about halfway through the conversation. And that does mean that there's a slight difference in audio quality for the second half of the interview. But I've been able to stitch it together quite well, so it's not too noticeable. But I I have to say, I really do appreciate Alan's understanding for these issues, and I hope it doesn't affect the listening experience for you too much. So to discuss how brands shift, here is the interview with Alan Adamson. I understand that you have a new book, shift ahead which is about how the best companies stay relevant in a fast-changing world to give some background for the audience why would a company need to shift well every day you read no matter where you're looking um, uh, about another business that was once you know a brand that you thought never could go out of business disappearing um Big companies like Kraft Heinz writing down billions of dollars, taxis disappearing from the street. Um, and so um, what's become clear uh, as I was looking at the industry was that lots of the challenges were not about marketing. How do you tell people how great your product is or remind them to, to buy your product? Um, lots of the challenges were flipping from communication and telling a compelling story that's different and relevant to, you know, the product in the category was disappearing, it was becoming irrelevant. You couldn't put lipstick on a pig. So the pace of change, while everyone always talks about it, um, seemed to be increasing. So uh, I set off with uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Joel Steckel from NYU, and we did a fair amount of research. And you know, said, why is it? Is it just us or, or are things moving faster? <laughs> are more companies going out of business? Are brands disappearing faster? And we uh, looked at all types of organizations, big and small, public and private. 
And you know, we we were you know curious as to why so many companies that know you have to keep up with the times and stay relevant to your with your consumer, which is a theory, um, were having trouble executing. And so that's what um, what was the impetus for the book. Mm-hmm. So I guess one big question I have is. I mean, from an outsider's point of view, you can normally see after after it's happened, it's like, oh, obviously that was going to happen. But when when you are an owner of um, a company, no matter what size it is, how can you be prepared for that situation so that you you can be ready to shift when you need to? Well, the f- the first uh, thing we found is that. Uh... Uh, if it was easy, everyone would do it. it. Part of it is the theory is easy. You know, ask consumers what's changing and keep your product and service relevant. The theory is easy, but uh, appreciating how hard and some of the forces that prevent most companies from shifting are, how strong they are. You know, what we found in the research of more than, as I said, 100 uh, companies is that there wasn't a magic potion of do these three things, but you had to uh, really appreciate how complex it was and and then do a, a few things right. So, you know, the biggest barrier to most companies um, uh, shifting is something we categorize from the old uh, television show in the U.S. called uh, Frasier. And Frasier had a dad who uh, lived with him and his dad brought a old – chair with him and always sat in that chair. And, you know, you need to realize that the past is more comfortable. Familiar is more comfortable. We are creatures of habit. (laughs) Uh, We wake up and we do today what we did yesterday. And so, you know, the sort of rule one is realizing that, you know, we're just, you know, we're just creatures of habit. And in that world, if it worked last year, let's do it. Uh, I like my traditional chair. Um, You're already starting in a difficult place. So one one is that most people don't see it coming. They're just comfortable with the familiar. Sometimes, you know, people just aren't listening. They're, you know, they, they become very internally focused. And that was a um, you know, they 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 talk to people that like their product, but they don't talk to people that are losing interest in their product. Mm. I, it struck me that um, the comfort and listening, I remember I was uh, flying out to uh, take my son to college several years ago and we landed at the airport and uh, as a family and uh, I start running or moving towards the car rental counter and my son looks at me like I was from Mars and you know dad why are we renting a car you know we're gonna have to take a bus to a car to park it you know I've already ordered a blank (laughs) a lift or whatever it is and so you know you know part of it is we're creatures of habit part of it is we're just really not listening um, to what's going on so I, I, I guess I, I know that you own a, an agency and I guess that's where your perspective has come from. And I know people listening to this, they're likely other graphic designers or agency owners with um, similar backgrounds. As an outsider, we can look at those uh, companies and, and you know, we, we can see that they need to shift. They need to make that, that change. Is there anything that you can do as an agency owner to kind of nudge that company that they need to think about shifting? Because from my understanding, I would have thought that 
understanding of that that they need to shift would have to come from the the company internally often it does but often the role of an agency um is to uh is to help the client see what's happening when they're so busy in meetings day to day they're not uh uh seeing the forest from the trees and so i'll tell you a story which i have in the book uh, at the end actually and when i was interviewing for uh, my first job, which wasn't advertising before I went into brand management at Unilever, uh, at Ogilvy and Mather. Um, I, uh, like Miss candidates, had to go through you know, eight or nine interviews during the day, and everyone talked about, you know, what's your thoughts on how to do media planning and what makes a great commercial and how do you do research. And I was really in the in the mode of, you know, playing back all the stuff that was in my head about how you do advertising, how you do marketing, how you do communications. And I finally get up to see the CEO at the end of the day and the big office in those days, almost a madman office. And um, uh, the CEO at the time was a gentleman named Ken Roman. And he looks at my uh, CV and he asks how the day was. I said, pretty good. And I'm all ready to answer his first question about copy strategy or importance of promotion and design. I, I'm just ready. I'm just all psyched to spit back at him all the facts and figures I had crammed into my head. And he goes, so Alan, um, why don't you start off by telling me the last book you read, what you learned from it, and then tell me the last show you went to and why you liked it. And uh, wow. <laughs> so I go, uh, uh, yeah, and of course, you know, I had read books, but too many of them had been about marketing segmentation, <laughs> and um, and I stumbled through that. I think I said green eggs and ham, trying to buy some time, and he said, "Well, tell me about green eggs and ham." And of course, oh, I realized that he was not a big Dr. Seuss fan, um, and uh, I muddled through that. And afterwards, I went back and I said, "Ken, you know, why did you spend all our time talking about theater uh, books?" culture. And uh, he goes, well, look, Alan, our job as an agency is to be our client's eyes and ears. You know, we need to see what's happening. We need to zoom out and see what's going on in the world that might change our client's business and what's going on in the world that will keep them culturally relevant. They're too busy making the Fruit Loops <laughs> or distributing the product or uh, doing the packaging, our job is to be a client's eyes and ears. I never forgot that lesson because I think too many agencies don't realize the important role they play in um, helping the client. Because one of the things we found in Shift Ahead is most clients, you know, are in a bubble. They, they they're just looking internally. They're talking to um, uh, about the business. They're not out <laughs> uh, in 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 the in the marketplace. Just observing and just being a little bit of Jerry Seinfeld, which is, you ever wonder why people eat the tops of muffins and not the whole muffin? Uh, and I think a big job of agencies needs to, to be to make sure your clients can see what's going on and the pace of change. Just like, you know, I learned when I was hanging out with my 20-year-old kid, you know, that anyone under 21 would rather, you know, walk than rent a car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, thinking about, you know, treating your clients in that way and being in their eyes and ears, I, I can see how that's totally eye-opening. Um, I'd, I'd love to kind of dig into this a little bit more because I, I know when you do work with agencies, 
from a process point of view, how do you how do you go about as an agency diagnosing that they do need to shift? And are there any like interesting processes that you use to come up with solutions for shifting? Well, you know, the the, the first is to appreciate how hard it is to do and not be uh, clever and say, oh, come on, you know, because yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, the first one that we found that was a major challenge is that part of what makes companies struggle with shifting is because the which way to go is is not clear. You know, uh, yeah. we did some interviews with Toys R Us before it vaporized. Um, they come back in some other form. But, you know, part of it was that they were not sure what to do. There was half of the company feeling that they needed to compete on price and build huge Costco-like stores. Uh, half the company and really hammer in an, an online um, solution to compete with Amazon. And half the company uh, felt that they needed to go high end. So when you went into a toy store and you asked what was appropriate for a seven-year-old, you would have somebody would say, well, I, I know all about seven-year-olds and here are the three hottest toys and here's how you – in other words, so an experience, a high-end experience like an Apple store or, or – and so there was a business case for both. And part of it, you know, was that they both looked risky. <laughs> there yeah. were issues with both. Nothing was ideal. And so they were caught in what many companies, you know, they're like a deer in a headlight. They don't know which way to go because they're not used to um, making big decisions, risky decisions. And all paths forward look risky. So they often get into, oh, let's study it some more <laughs> and do some research. So many, many companies are what we call analysis paralysis. Um, and so you need to realize that that is a challenge. The other challenge, and it's a major one that you need to be cognizant of, um, occurred, you know, I worked on many, many years ago uh, in, in the Mad Men days, Kodak. And, you know, I always thought Kodak just didn't see the digital revolution coming, you know, that they, they were just you know, asleep at the switch, asleep at the wheel. And we went back and we spoke to lots of people who worked at Kodak around the time that you know, Kodak was king of the hill and uh, disappeared, um, including, you know, several people from the strategic planning department. And you know, the first surprise was that they had predicted the eclipse point, the tipping point where digital would pass film and kill the cat six years in advance wow. to the quarter. <laughs> so they knew, you know, Chris, they saw that train coming down the track uh as clear as anyone in the category. So that led to the other question. If you saw the train coming for six years, couldn't you get out of the way? Um, And the reason is because film was so massively profitable that anything they did other than sell film reduced their profit margins. Digital, they were losing a a, a ton of money on digital. They were spending some money in research, but film was, the margins were 80%. And Wall Street, every quarter said, well, how are you going to keep the numbers going up? The film people said, we need to sell more and discount it. And I need my bonus. And so they couldn't move money from the very profitable film business to the very unprofitable nascent digital businesses. And that, that happens to a lot of companies because almost Across category, what we found is that if you're trying to shift to something new, it's going to be less profitable than what you're doing today. So 
not only does gravity keep you and inertia keep you uh, more comfortable than yesterday, but the business model of pleasing Wall Street and making money drives you to do what you did yesterday, which you can optimize, then to try something new, which you're likely going to not be as profitable. And so I think making sure you understand this is not like the client doesn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the fact that, you know, the which way to go is anxiety producing. And no matter which one they choose, uh, they're going to lose more money, even back to Toys R Us. If they built a big online presence to compete with Amazon or big stores, that was going to cost billions of dollars. If they rolled out the experiential stores, that was going to cost billions. So there were two bad choices for them. And so, you know, just keep in mind that it's easy on the outside to say, oh, you know, why don't you, why don't you build electric yeah. cars? Yeah. <laughs> really hard for General Motors to build electric cars when they make a good amount of money on building a car just like they did last year. Mm. It kind of feels like some companies are destined to fail. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like that, that Kodak example that you, you spoke about then is... Uh, if they did make that change, they're going to make a dramatic loss and the company is going to down, go downhill anyway. The, the right. easiest thing to, to do surely would be to start something from scratch on the side. Well, they could have. They were making enough money on film. They could have made a decision to say, instead of reporting to Wall Street, we called it the golden handcuffs that, you know, we made $10 billion. We're going to say we made $2 billion, but we're going to be around tomorrow. You know, and a lot of entrepreneur-owned companies today were the founder you know, as a, a checkbook, whether it's Amazon or Elon Musk, are able to do that because they can say, we're going to lose money for five years, eight years. I don't care. But I know what I'm building is going to, is going to allow me to shift and change the whole market. Mm. Well, I know in your position, and I, I am making some assumptions here, I assume that when a company recognizes that they have that problem, uh, you know, that they... That, that they feel that they need to shift to be relevant and they they know that they need to make some kind of change, but they're in a situation where it's like they literally don't know what to do. That's when I would assume that they would reach out to a company uh, like yourself or another branding agency. Now that's a challenging problem. How would you as an agency go about helping them to find a solution to that challenge? So one way an agency can help uh, a client uh, who needs to shift is to uh, create future states uh, and prototype them so a client can see what a future might look like or a particular direction might look like, and then frame the implications. So you create one scenario where, you know, you do this and you push on service and you innovate here. You create another uh, scenario where you push on uh, a different variable and you bring that world to life by prototyping it, showing what the brand might be, showing what the new retail experience might be, showing what an online experience might be, showing how their competitors might be. And you create a world that they can see down the road. in, And that becomes a way you can help them get comfortable with making decisions. And then you talk about, well, if you choose door one, you're going to really need to be focused and great at this. If you choose door two, you're going to have to do this to succeed because success in different future states is going to be different. So you can you can help them by helping them see around the corner. 
uh, and see what may be coming down the road and bringing that to life. And if you do that, um, you can um, enable them to prevent themselves from falling into analysis paralysis. I know you mentioned about prototyping and I, I understand that that's kind of like predicting things, but how do you, um, like when you, when you say prototype, what is it that you're actually putting together and how are you showing that to the client? So if you were going to prototype a world of how you sell eyeglasses, um, before, you know, you know, to an old um, or an existing retailer eight years ago or five you might have created uh, a prototype that showed a different display experience like Warby Parker has. You might have uh, talked about a sales uh, interaction that was different than the traditional person behind the counter handing you glasses. So prototyping is not just, you know, here's a new logo and here's a new, uh, new and improved thing. Prototyping is showing the brand or the, the offer of the service in a future state and, and bringing that to life. And because technology allows us in to, to really create phenomenally realistic things without building a new store, without redesigning the package and actually doing it, you can you can help them see further down the road by creating artifacts that show what their world might be like if they made direction A come to life or direction B come to life. So, I mean, in terms of like the actual thing that you show, is it just more like telling a story? It's and- a concept board. It, it, you know, it's it's usually a, although it often can be 3D too, because for certain products, you know, you can now with laser printing, you know, actually put something they can feel in their hand. Can you imagine if your phone looked like this? Or can you imagine if your um, toothbrush looked like this? So, um uh, yeah, there's no easy way to help a client, but one way is to um, is to create future scenarios. Another important way is that one of the reasons we found many reasons that shifting ahead was so hard to do, but one of them is um, that there's a lack of diversity in thinking and perspective inside many clients. Um, you know, that diversity is not the traditional sense, but they tend to all hire from the same schools and people have the same experience and they all view the world through the same lens. And oftentimes agencies, no matter what type of agency it is, be it digital agency, media agency, promotion agency, design agency, uh, tend to attract people that see the world very differently. You know, they're just cut from a different cloth. And having multiple perspectives People looking at the same set of facts and seeing completely different things, um, who are you know a little bit, you know, having that multiple lens approach, you can help your client because you your team will see the facts and the world as you walk down the street differently than the client team, and sharing that with them. Um, and I can give you a, a few examples of that uh, uh, as we talk. I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. As creatives, we like to spend our time designing logos and brand identities, but a lot of us spend more time than we'd like doing admin work, like creating invoices, chasing payments, logging expenses. 
and that's where FreshBooks can help you. It's an accounting software designed for creative professionals that will save you time. For example, you can create branded, professional-looking invoices in as little as 30 seconds. You can set up credit card payments right from those invoices too, meaning that your clients can pay faster. And when it comes around to tax time, you can export out tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with an accountant really simple. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, making sure to enter Logo Geek in how did you hear about a section. Now let's get back to the interview. No, I I think we've got a good understanding of uh, shifting. And as I know that you do have your own uh, agency metaphors, I'd, I'd love to speak to you a little bit more about the, the way that you work. And uh, one thing that immediately stood out for me, I mean, I spent um, a little bit of time looking through your website. One thing that really stood out for me is, is interesting, and it, it might be... Um, uh, you might do that based on what you what you just explained there, but I, I noticed from like a team perspective and a management perspective that you've got your three leaders, um, yourself and and two others, and then everyone else is a partner. Um, I'm curious to find out a little bit more about the why the the reason why you work like that because I, I guess traditionally. Um, the the way that I understand most businesses work is they they kind of got like their CEO and then they got their management team and then they got employees and everyone works in the same office and so on. So when you use partners, how how are you working with them? Are 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 you using partner as a, a way of saying like employee or or do you literally like from a strategy perspective when you need something do you reach out to um certain people as and when needed is is that the way that that works in terms well, of partners well let me let me zoom out a bit and then I'll explain sure. that because it'll become you know one of the uh observations that we had before we started metaphors is that too many clients do many, many things averagely. They do a pretty good job on a website, a little bit of product design, uh, a little bit of digital communications, and it's all good, but not great. And in today's world where social media, word of mouth is a very important, uh, um, or maybe the killer uh, channel, no one shares ordinary. No one shares, gee, I flew to the city and the flight got there sort of on time and no one spilled anything on me. You know, it's invisible if they do an average job. If they do something terrible and they land in the wrong city and lose your bags, you'll be sure to tell every friend you possibly can. Mm -hmm. But if they do something extraordinarily different and powerful, you really want to share it. You want to tell that story. So marketing is being driven by doing a few things really well. Now, why is that challenging? I uh, I worked at uh, Landor, uh, which is a branding firm within WPP for many years. And a big challenge that existed in the WPP holding company, even in Landor, but other holding companies as well, was if you asked who was the expert in branding, everyone's hand came up. At a meeting, the caterer's hand came up. If you said who was an expert in advertising, everyone, was, everyone said, oh, we do that too. And it became clear that to, to us that, to do a few things great, you needed to get a team that's 
that really were experts in them, not just, oh, I read a book on how to do digital social media, <laughs> and so I'm going to do it. Um, and because without that expertise, it's like if you're building a, if you're redoing a kitchen, you don't want the floor person doing your cabinets. <laughs> you know, you don't, and, and so we wanted to get back to that, um, doing a few things really well. So we put together a team of people that were really strong, even at the leadership level, the core partners. I didn't want to have five people which goes back to something else we talked about earlier in our conversation. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have five branding experts lead the firm because they all look at the world through a branding lens. I wanted to have our team be able to have a, a, a media expert, mm -hmm. a research person, a, uh, a person who has a creative mind in writing, a person who has creative mind uh, in art direction to be able to look at a problem through multiple lenses and figure out, A, what's the right solution? Because if you can't do everything, the biggest next challenge is if you're not gonna do everything averagely, you know, what are the one or two things you're gonna do extraordinarily? And that's really hard because most clients are risk averse and they wanna do everything. Let's have a website, let's do social, let's do. And you know, part of success we felt was saying, look, there are eight things you could do. We're gonna do three things and we're gonna do them extraordinarily. So to be able to figure out what those three things are, I wanted partners who had a different lens on so we could all sit together and say, you know, here are the three t target things because precision matters. And then once we pivot to activation, um, have somebody who was a true expert in media or a true expert in strategy or a true expert in design to be able to flip from it looks good in a PowerPoint deck to can they make it extraordinary in market? So in that sort of model, we have the core partners um, who, who share in the business are in the first tier, and they're both founding and regular partners. But you know, they are all in, and their role is to help diagnose precisely what bet you want to take. Mm -hmm. And then there are a broader set of what we call activation partners, who we call on when we, if we need to do a film or if we need to do uh, a, a website build up. We want to make sure that once we propose to a client, that they have to have the most extraordinary mobile experience that we have people that that's all they do. They are phenomenal mobile designers, <laughs> uh, not someone who's done a little of this and a little of that. So those dimensions uh, came into to forming. And one final one without chewing off your ear, which I've already done, mm -hmm. is that part of success is also having your, from the, I forget what the movie is, having your head in the game. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of work in agencies, you, it's not, big ideas don't come to you or they didn't come to, to me when I was sitting at a screen reading emails. <laughs> Big ideas uh, or good ideas come to people when they're all in, their head's all in, the, and they're thinking about it when they're running in the park. They're thinking about it when they're uh, walking down the street. And so we wanted people who were, when they were engaged with a client, we're not saying, well, I'll be available between two and four to do some thinking. I'm pretty busy today. <laughs> uh, but once they dug into a client problem, they were all in because Doing a few things extraordinarily well requires people that are all in, not sort of there doing a little chatting and then moving on to the next project. Hmm. It's a really that ramble helped. No, no, it's it's fantastic. It's it's a really interesting way to work, and I don't know if other agencies work in that same way, but it sounds like you have a relatively small kind of permanent central team, yep. and and because of the the way that you work, so with the 
uh, with the strategy and being able to identify these problems, you can pretty much do anything and pull in someone who is a real expert of that particular um, skill set. And, and it, what that means is that from, from your perspective, when you do help your clients, you're not just, I guess, creating a, a, an out-of-the-box solution that your, your internal team can cope with. You, you really are basically using the very best people um, that, that's at your disposal as and when needed without having to employ them full time. It's a really, right. and so we, you know, we can be a little more efficient or a lot more efficient uh, because also when you're, when you, when you have one shot to do it right, you want, you want a really seasoned team to do it. If you're going to go in for surgery, you don't want to have uh, someone just finished reading their you know, medical school books to, to do the surgery. It's like when I fly going back to, you know, I really love when the pilot get, comes out of the cockpit or gets on and says, I've been flying this jet for 20 years and I flew fighter pilot. Yeah. You know, I was a fighter pilot for 10 years before that. Yeah. And even though the, the younger pilot may, <laughs> may be equally qualified, there's something reassuring um, about somebody who has mm-hmm. done this before. So we, we, we really want to make sure that when we engage with a client, uh, we don't pass it down and say, well, I'm the leading partner, but you'll be working with Debbie and John and there'll be your day-to-day team. But if you need me, I'll be involved. And yeah. I'll, I'll be looking over their shoulder. And, you know, lots of the challenges of a big agency is you have the senior people going out and talking to new clients and the junior people figuring out, all right, now what did the senior people promise and how the heck can I do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I've been in, in agencies where, um, you know, as, as a, the senior graphic designer, I've been on that sales process. And then it just, like you said, gets passed on to someone with um, less experience. And, and I think, uh, you know, from a customer point of view, that's not exactly what you would expect. But I, I do like that you do have that, um, you know, incredibly experienced top level uh, tier of people that you're working with. And then people that can come in that are experts as when needed. Can I just ask about uh, those uh, individual people? Because are they basically contractors? So they, they work freelance or they run their own business? There are sometimes contracts, sometimes small agencies we hire. Um, okay. But often the people we work with, we do multiple projects. So we become you know, usually 70 to 90% of what they do. Right. It's just they don't know which client they're going to work on and, you know, we have enough velocity. But if I need phenomenal packaging, I have two or three solo practitioners. If it's a small job, if we're doing a bigger job for a larger company, mm-hmm. I have, you know, a few small agencies where I actually have worked with the, the principals, the, uh, the, the leads, and, and we'll bring in a small agency that's laser focused and all they do is consumer consumer packaging in fast food, you know, work for Colgate or work for Proctor. So they're, they're, they, they are just really good. There's not somebody who's done some packaging for Sony going in to talk to Colgate about how to do a shampoo. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really more of a curated, you know, once we decide that the three things they need to do is win on this, this, and this, I, I want to make sure that the team that we bring in, uh, be it an individual person that I've worked with or we've worked with as a group many years mm-hmm. uh, or a slightly bigger, but they're usually small agencies uh, under 40 or 50 people. Um, usually we don't go to a huge global agency because it, it doesn't allow us to be precise in saying, 
these four people have done this and they are great at this type of packaging or this type of video or this type of uh, digital experience. Yeah, that clarifies one of the questions I was going to ask because I, I was going to say if 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 they are like the the best out there and they're working for themselves and they're like a solo practitioner, they're quite likely booked out several months in advance. And I was wondering how you get around that situation. But you <laughs> clarifying my question. Yeah, because we have enough work for them that you know if they're working on something, it's usually another project for us. Yeah. Um, but we also have a pretty deep bench, so. Um, and we, off, we, you know, the other thing that we try to do, which is used to be more common in the old days, is we were just out at a client doing uh, a strategy first step where we talked to the leadership and interview the CEO. And, you know, um, we bring the creative team that we intend to use. We think we're going to use two or three of them with us because I want them to, um, to drink the Kool-Aid. I want them to get their head in the game. I want them to see how these people talk, what their business is, what their passion is. No, they're not going to write the strategy. They're not going to figure out necessarily, you know, which lever do we push, but um, they're going to have their head in the game earlier than when I was at an agency and the client people did all the right. And then finally went into some creative team's office with a piece of paper saying, here's a brief. And that never worked. Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's quite comforting because um, in the uh, creative space, uh, brand strategy is becoming this buzzword and every designer, every, you know, uh, well, any creative person is is feeling like they need to become a, a strategist. But actually, when there are agencies like yourself that are specializing in that, you have experts in that, that's your real skill set. It's, it's nice to know that you can um, really focus on your craft and perfecting your craft and there are agencies out there like yourself and I'm sure there's plenty of, of others that will reach out to, um, you know, the person that is the best at that thing and, and still use that person in that way without them having to do all the complex strategy work, which is what you're yep. doing. Yep. Exactly. Now we're near the end of our time. So there's one last question that I got and, um, I understand that you have done some teaching and there was something that I, uh, read in a previous interview that you, you said that a, a lot of your students tend to struggle with the ability to focus, to listen, and to apply critical thinking to a problem. And everything that we spoke about in this interview requires that. You know, you have to listen, you have to understand. And by understanding, only then can you actually provide some kind of proper solution. So because you face that problem so many times and you are, uh, well, you have worked with students, what advice have you been giving or what approach have you taken to, to help those people improve in that area? Um, no easy challenge. You know, first <laughs> is that uh, I do my best to, uh, not teaching right now, but when I was uh, a couple of years ago mm. uh, to have a laptops closed, <laughs> no computers, phones, mm. you know, down classroom because um, prior to that I would be lecturing up front and I would see a sea of laptops screens back of them facing me. And of course, when I wandered <laughs> to the back of the classroom, you know, if half the class wasn't on social media and the other half of the class was on Amazon, you know, so, um, yeah, part of it is helping them 
free themselves from day-to-day distractions. The other is a bit of the uh, getting them to engage in something interesting. And so part of it is if we do a case study, um, bringing that case study, whether I bring in an executive from the company who demos a product in front of them, (laughs) uh, whether it's virtual reality glasses or, uh, you know, a corporate product, but, you know, making it more real than read these four paragraphs and be prepared to talk about, you know, which toothbrush is the best toothbrush. Mm -hmm. So I tried to choose cases that were, where I could get uh, speakers from the company uh, or the brand group to come in and bring it to life. Because if somebody's there and it's their life, they're talking about how they spent the last nine months optimizing a toothbrush for Colgate. Students tend to, you know, maybe not check in on Instagram. They, you know, they, they, it's more engaging. I think based on that, it, it sounds like students are more switching off because it's a classroom environment and um i guess that teaching needs to change in in the way that you have done and hopefully doing what you've done when it does come around to a real world situation i'm, I'm sure there are a lot more um alert aware listening and so on mm-hmm. and i really try to you know the other thing that i you know one of the things that i often do to get better solutions is this notion of a critique where you put an idea up and then have several people say, how would you make it better? Not what's wrong with it. (laughs) You know, I don't like blue. I don't like, you know, and I often do that. I say, look, here's an idea that uh, I'm working on right now, or we were working on a year ago for Sony. And here's the challenges, you know, how do you do it? And, And force them to get out of the listening mode into the doing mode and force them to start talking about, well, they don't like that or they don't like that or it's not that interesting, but all right, you know, you're, I hire you, you you have to go speak to the CMO of Sony tomorrow. What do you tell them? And, and force them to realize how hard it is to, to be positive in critiquing and shaping an idea and how important it is to do that um, to get to a better idea. Mm. I, I love that response. And um, especially for people in the Lego Geek community on Facebook, you, you get a lot of people that will, um, you know, share some work that someone's done and they're like, you know, what do you think of this? Actually questioning or framing the question in the way that you've done then totally changes the way that you're thinking about it. So I think that's, that's right. fantastic. And it's really hard. It's easy to say, I hate that. That's terrible. Yeah. What's yeah. harder is to say, well, you know, it would have been stronger if they, if they did this and, and for the, for the creator of the idea, getting comfortable with everything that comes out of your head is not perfect. <laughs> and if you are a closed thinker and saying, well, this is perfect and I'm just going to put my head down and try to sell it versus open to getting perspective from other people to help you be stronger and not feeling you are the ultimate identity logo creator and, these three type faces are precious and I spent six months crafting that R. Don't tell me to change that R. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's important. Sometimes you get better work that way, but more often you don't. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a really good way to close off the interview. So Alan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. And thank you for 
uh, your understanding with the technical issues. Yeah, and I've enjoyed talking with you. And if you, if when you put it together, it feels like there's too much duct tape, and <laughs> it looks like uh, you know. Then let's uh, schedule a time and we'll do it all again. I'll, I'll make it work. I don't think we need to do that. But, um, yeah, thanks so much. It's been really great. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, let myself and Alan know by giving us a shout out on social media. Why not take a photo of where you are in the world and let us know. I I always love to hear from people who listen to the podcast and I know that Alan will appreciate this too. If you want to learn more about Alan Adamson, head to the website for his book, shiftaheadbook.com and also his agency, metaphors.co. Alternatively, check out the show notes for this episode where I'll link to those websites as well as Alan's social profiles, links to any books and resources mentioned in in the interview, as well as the full transcription of the interview too. To find the show notes, head to logageek.uk forward slash 68. Again, to find the show notes for this week's episode, head to logageek.uk forward slash 68. If you're keen to discuss anything mentioned in this interview with me and almost 8,000 other logo designers from around the world, join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's totally free to join and it's incredibly active, meaning that you'll get your questions answered, uh, the, the feedback you want on your work and the support that you need to grow as a designer. To find that, simply head to logogeek.uk forward slash community or just search on Facebook for the Logo Geek community. On top of that, if you'd like to jump on video calls with me and a handful of other professional designers every two weeks, you can do that by joining Logo Geek Plus. It's currently only $10 a month to join and for that you'll get access to those video calls, a private forum, a Slack group, as well as all recordings from previous sessions too. Some of those have included special guests. Uh, One of those was David Airy, who's best known for Logo Design Love. And he went through his entire design process from start to finish, which I think is worth its weight in gold alone. Uh, We've also recently worked through activities where we've worked together uh, to design a logo for a non-profit. And as it was so successful and everyone loved it so much, I want to do more of this type of thing and to continue to bring in special guests too. So I I really hope it will be um, a special thing that people will want to be part of. Long term, I do plan to increase the price of this, but once you subscribe, you're locked into the price that you paid at the beginning. So it's a good time to get in early while it's still relatively cheap. So if Logo Geek Plus is of interest, head to community.logogeek.uk. And when you first sign up, I'll also send you a Logo Geek enamel pin badge too, so that you'll feel that you're, you're part of the Logo Geek Club. So that's it for this week, but I will see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast. <laughs>